Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of Biotech 2050 and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. I'm excited to welcome Luba Greenwood, CEO of Cogent Therapeutics and managing partner of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute's Venture Fund. Thanks for joining us today, Luba. Thanks, Rahul. Luba, to kick us off, would love to understand the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. Absolutely. Well, I studied science early on and then spent the early years of my career as a lawyer at a large firm right here in Boston called Wilmer Hale. And then later I transitioned to the business side. First at Big Pharma, I was with Pfizer and then later on Roche, where I worked in both therapeutics and diagnostics and then went into big tech when in the life sciences, there was greater interest in digital health. That's where I worked on digital health and tools such as artificial intelligence for drug discovery and development. And then later on in my career, I moved to the investing and the company building side. I think I've been lucky in my career. I was able to do everything from litigating patents to doing merge and acquisition deals and investing in companies. I have built companies, everything from women's health and microbiome companies and AI drug discovery company to now therapeutic companies and oncology and other indications. And one of the things that I've recognized throughout my career is a lot of innovation in the life sciences comes from academia. And also, in addition to that, the clinical data that helps us make better therapies and also improve outcomes for patients also come from academic medical centers. So this most recently prompted me to partner up with the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and launch and build a venture fund for them that currently focuses on investing and building companies. So we invest in early stage and series A companies with breakthrough science that has real impact on patients. And it can be in oncology and outside of oncology as well. And is the venture fund focused only on innovation that's occurring at Dana-Farber or are you investing externally as well? It's a great question. When we build the fund, we consider both and we recognize that a lot of the innovation and a lot of our PIs as well are working not just at Dana-Farber, but also in other institutes locally and, and in other areas globally as well. So we look at everything at, at Dana-Farber, but also beyond. Great. And, you know, Luba, given your background from a legal perspective, and perhaps for folks that are listening that have a similar background, I'm curious how you think about how that experience relates to running a biotech, because, you know, it's a non-obvious path for many, but curious what you've learned along the way that you could share with folks with similar backgrounds. Yeah, it's a great question. And and many years have passed since then, of course. I think that uh, having a experience on the business side, and especially I would say in industry and venture is important. But in a place like the life sciences, so in biotech and healthcare overall, it's one of the most highly regulated industries. And not just highly regulated, but also the patents and intellectual property in patents, but also beyond patents as well is fundamental to the valuation, to the value of the company. So the transition, I thought probably transition from a, and also being a litigator, I think that probably not being a litigator, being a corporate lawyer is a little more difficult, but as a litigator where you're hired to solve problems for businesses, especially on the regulatory and IP side and security side. So for those that are going public is quite valuable. Yeah, great. Thanks for sharing that. 
And I'm curious, given your background in big pharma, you know, the Roche, the Pfizer's of the world, as well as at Google, what are some things that have surprised you in terms of translatability of your experience from big pharma and very large orgs to now running cogent therapeutics? Yes, I would say in big pharma and big pharma and big tech is in itself very different and the approach is very different. And big tech, a lot of that, believe it or not, is probably more translatable into biotech than sometimes the experience or especially leadership experience at big pharma and big pharma especially back, I think that things have changed quite a bit since I was there. Some of the approaches to drug discovery and drug development were siloed and also very much dependent on different pharma companies. They're, they're actually not, I know people tend to say big pharma, but they're all quite different. At, at Google and in tech, there is a lot more emphasis on making products. And again, making products in the digital health space is a bit different than, of course, diagnostics or med device or therapeutics. But smaller teams, more integrated teams, collaborative teams, a lot of that experience is much more easily translatable into biotech space. So Luba, now before we jump into what you're working on now, if you could set the stage for us around what's misunderstood about how cells die and some of the novel biology that the Cogent team has discovered along the way. Yeah, it's a, another great question. I got to know about Cogent Therapeutics, and I was lucky to get to know it as part of looking into different companies as an investor at Dana-Farber. And we are also privileged in seeing probably the greatest and some of the most breakthrough technologies that are coming in oncology. And one of the things that became very clear is if you look at what's called hot modalities, immune oncology, protein degradation, there are a lot of exciting pathways that everybody is going after. At the end of the day, they all go after the same mechanism, which is they end up in triggering apoptosis. And again, our scientists have discovered, uh, and not just our scientists, there's only very recently scientists have discovered that cells die by an entirely another mechanism. And that mechanism is called ferroptosis. And the team at Cogen not only recognized that and was actually our co-founders were part of that team that named ferroptosis, but also cracked the code on how to induce and prevent that cell death. So if you're thinking about cell death on the induction side, inducing is key, of course, in cancer and in inflammation, immunology, metabolism, and prevention. So where you want to prevent the death of cells plays a central role in neurodegeneration and immune diseases as well. So as an example, we're only learning now that our neurons and cells in neurodegeneration die by ferroptosis, not apoptosis. So that's very important. So if you're making a therapy without understanding that biology that plays that's central to cell death, going after apoptosis may not be all that effective in neurodegeneration. And in cancer, well, you may ask, well, what's wrong with targeting apoptosis? That's where we're going. That's how we're killing cells. And the issue is we see is cells, number one, they build resistance to this kind of death. And that we often see many patients become resistant to the current therapies. And that's why we need combo therapies and second and third line of treatment. And then the second is although we talk a lot about precision medicine, I would imagine on your podcast, you talk a lot about that. We have not made much progress in making targeted medicines for patients today. So in cancer, the majority of cancer patients that come to the hospital for the first time, they're diagnosed with cancer in later stage. And of those that are diagnosed, 
we have only developed therapies for a very tiny subset of those patients where we know a specific genetic mutation, and even that becomes resistant. So the rest of patients that come in, usually over 90% have no viable treatment today. So the ferroptosis, it's a differentiated cell death. It's much more targeted cell death for a larger patient population. And again, not just in oncology, is going to play and is already playing, we're seeing, getting some data, a serious role in debilitating disease in oncology, but also chronic diseases. And lastly, I would say we don't all, and this is another thing we're learning, we don't all respond to autoimmune medication, for example, in the same way and effectively. We all don't respond to neurodrugs in the same way. So ferritosis could change that in the future. And that's what we're working at Cogent Therapeutics today. Wonderful. And Luba, so with that wonderful primer, where are you now from an R&D perspective? And talk to us a little bit about fundraising and size of team and such. Yeah, absolutely. So we're very lucky, I have to say, that, as I mentioned, the field has only started being developed fairly recently and in academia. And we were the first and many years ahead of the other companies. They're they're only beginning, some of the companies beginning to be developed and started up. We're much later stage. So we have raised a very successful Series A from investors such as New Bath and Polaris that are very supportive. And we have a strong team. The key, I would say, and this is, I know we'll talk about, uh, you are very interested in some of the kind of team creation and company building, is that in an area where you're discovering entirely novel biology, of course, having the expertise about that novel biology, which comes from biologists, is key. But that has to be complemented by people that know how to make real medication. So we have spent a considerable amount of time over the years building out those capabilities and understanding that, but also building out the team of chemists, but also pharmacologists, enzymologists, and others that are also help us identify biomarkers of disease and predictive biomarkers to know which patients are going to respond to the particular ferroptosis inducing drug. Wonderful. I'm curious, given your background as an investor, and, and I believe you sit on a couple of boards as well. As you you know wear all of these different hats, I'm curious how your approach changes when you sit on a board versus you know obviously being on your own board at Cogen. How you approach those conversations differently? I wish more people asked those questions. You know, I have to say that as a CEO, having board members and many CEOs would tell you this: having board members that have themselves been or are a CEO is very important. I also think that as a board member, having the experience of, again, that operational experience and what you can add to the board that is complementary to many of the other investors that not all often have that operational experience is key. And I have to say the legal part, especially for public companies, is important as well. I would say in this environment, of course, when the times were much better for the biotech industry, although things are getting corrected recently, It is the background of a scientist, a physician, of an investor that was important. But times have now changed, and they've changed quite significantly. And it is not clear that we will be back to where we were even six months ago in terms of not so much financially, but how we view company building. And today, what's important are real-world skills and understanding how do you pivot your programs, for example. How do you build up in a more cheaper way, potentially, your intellectual property position? How do you protect your intellectual property position? 
what do you do when you need to potentially pivot to an entirely different area that you haven't even discovered or thought of before? And then challenges, of course, that the public markets bring in terms of securities and and other regulations. So I would say there is a greater need. And I see this when people are looking for board members, independent board members, they're looking more and more for operational CEO and legal skills to build out their boards. Yeah, certainly agree of the importance of having folks on your board that have been operators. And something you said that certainly resonated was having CEOs that have well-rounded experience, particularly given the the changing environment. You mentioned something about IP positioning and protecting your, your IP. Help us understand, you know, perhaps your own mental model around how folks should be thinking about or how you think about protecting IP when you're at an early stage, high growth biotech versus perhaps being in in pharma and how those might be different. Yeah. So if early on, and this was important for us at Cogen, especially when you're going into area where you're the first mover, where you are also an area that's going to become hot and exciting. So areas such as ferroptosis or areas such as CRISPR or mRNA technology. First of all, understanding your IP position. So doing your FTO analysis and seeing what, are there any blocking patterns out there is important. And then once you understand your position, building out both, I would say, when I say protective, the kind of IP protection that will protect you more narrowly, but also broadly in the field. So in addition to composition of matter, which are your compounds, you also want to make sure that you build out your positioning, that you protect your company within the entire field. And that also makes you to your question about, well, how do strategics think about that? Strategics, for them, IP is very important. I could go and give you a whole class on intellectual, intellectual property in the pharma companies, but it's vital. And understanding, first of all, your IP position, and then not just how you protect it, but also licensing correctly, entering in an intelligent way into partnerships and understanding what do you bring in? Are you bringing in novel IP for composition of matter? Are you bringing in and licensing out intellectual property for a particular indication, which might not be as exciting as something that protects, for example, a larger field? So again, we could go and have a whole podcast on IP here, (laughs) but it's vital. Yeah. Appreciate your perspective on that topic, given your background. Let's uh, switch gears a little bit. And we started to go down this path around, you know, what are some of the key challenges? And we're in a very different environment than we were even six months or a year ago. I'm curious what you've been seeing in terms of that changing macro environment and also how the change that's underway right now impacts how you think about culture and leadership given the dynamic environment we're in. Yeah. So I would say the key challenge today in therapeutics is that even with all the machine learning tools, AI tools, and all the new novel data sources, and we have organ on chip technologies, we have novel preclinical models and mice models, but those models still don't translate into success and efficacy in the clinic. For biotech, I would say that's one of the main challenges today, which makes in itself, of course, the R&D model not very efficient. And many companies we see, they claim to use these magical powers of AI to generate insights and into seeing whether or not they'll have success in the clinic. But the issue, the reason why they're not have been effective, even though we see quite a bit of deal activity in these types of companies providing services to R&D players, is because none of them use data from biology to basically generate those insights. 
So as a result, predictive modeling like this would not lead to fruitful outcomes. It might lead to selectively and picking some assets, but that doesn't mean that they will be successful. Another challenge I would say in therapeutics is that although we all call biotech risky as an investment and as a business, very few companies are actually taking real risks and putting their efforts to discover something novel, something revolutionary, something that will change patients' lives. At Dana Farber as an investor, that's what we were looking for. We were looking for those types of assets, which is how we got to Cogen. And we see many two companies going after the same pathways. Way too many, I would say, single asset companies, companies that are repurposing generics to or marketed drugs for a novel use, which, by the way, presents many other, as we talked about, intellectual property challenges, makes many of those assets not just not very useful for patients, but also not very valuable. So we need a lot more real innovation to make a real difference. And then diagnostics, I would say it's been wonderful to see the healthcare field embracing at-home tests and different delivery models. But as I mentioned in cancer, we still, most of the patients find out too late at stage three and after when the cancer has already spread. So liquid biopsy, which will enable that early and non-invasive detection, unfortunately is still in early stages of development for most cancers out there. And, you know, talk to us a little bit about, from your perspective, what's changed from a fundraising perspective for biotechs and how you're thinking about, you know, the next one to two years and how perhaps others should be thinking about the current environment and team building. So I guess I will start probably with some of the fundraising today and the current environment, then we can cover the team building. Everyone knows it's been a tough year for fundraising and biotech. And of course, there are a lot of theories as to why, you know, the economy, the Fed, inflation, short sellers, high values, high, you know, sky high valuations that needed correction anyway, and just the sheer number of IPOs that we've had. And as a result, some of the investors lost appetite for these risky early stage assets in favor of some of the clinical stage assets. We have seen others that have shifted entirely from crossover and late stage investment into just doing seeds and series A's and some series B's. But ultimately, these are all short-term effects. If you look at and think about novel science, regardless of stage of development, they'll still find funding. Valuation may be a little different again in a short run, but in the long run, they will find funding and valuation will stabilize. Healthcare spending as a percent of GDP, it keeps on climbing. Patients live longer, and unfortunately, they live longer with debilitating chronic diseases. And we're only at the beginning of unlocking human biology, such as learning that cells die by ferroptosis and not just apoptosis. So I'm very bullish on the life sciences in the long run. Yeah, I certainly agree. You know, in many ways, it feels like even with the correction that's underway, we're in this golden age of scientific innovation. But to your point, I think, you know, particularly as we start to apply you know, things like software machine learning to drug discovery, I think the future is, is certainly bright. And over the last you know, several years, the fundamental value proposition of what we do as a, as a sector has certainly strengthened over time. Absolutely. So given the current dynamics that we just talked about, curious to hear your perspective on what good leadership looks like right now, given the current environment. Rahul, um, I have to say company culture is key in maintaining that company culture. The hardest challenges in good environments, but also in tough environments are solved by great teams. Uh, as I mentioned in the future, it's understanding of that biology and collaboration between different teams. So everything from chemists to pharmacologists to biologists and computational biologists and chemists, those are the teams and the collaborative spirit that will solve the greatest challenges. 
And that only happens in companies that have strong culture that also enable that type of a collaboration and also enable not being afraid, for example, to fail. Because as we know, the faster something fails, the quicker that you get to a real breakthrough. If you have toxic culture, if you have too many silos, if you have too much hierarchy, if you're afraid to speak up, you won't find any breakthroughs. And there are many examples of that not happening. For us at Cogen, this is the reason why culture is not only important, but I have to say it, it is our secret sauce. I would say in addition to IP and when the trade secrets, we have a secret sauce of great culture. And we take great effort to ensure that we maintain that strong culture as we grow and we're growing rapidly. And on leadership, when you ask what's important in leadership, and I have to say, I teach a class at Harvard at the School of Engineering, and the students always ask for a class on leadership. And there are thousands of books and articles on this topic and numerous business school cases. There are all sorts of formulas here, top 10 things to do, three characteristics of great leader and everything from lead by example, integrity to open, honest communication. And these are all recurring themes in all of them. One thing that almost none of them mentioned and probably one of the key ingredients for a real leader, especially in biotech and life sciences, which is a difficult industry, is very simple. It's be genuine and love what you do. Having passion for what you do, believing in what you do. We're in a field of uncertainty and big scientific challenges and hard problems to solve. And those leaders that genuinely love what they do, they show up every day and work side by side with their teams to bring those life-saving medicines to patients, they do well. And these are the leaders that inspire their teams to reach that kind of level of success that a lot of the times people think is unimaginable. And they also enjoy the work and the process of getting there. Great. I'm curious, Luba, over the last you know two years and change since we've been in the pandemic, what are some perhaps silver linings as you see them of the pandemic? where you've seen positive change that you hope lasts long after we're done with the pandemic? There's a lot more focus on science, appreciation of science and biotech. I am also happy that a lot more and more of patients are asking the right questions of their physicians. They are doing more research and getting more informed. And also one of the things, one of the reasons why we've had such quick uh, vaccines coming on the market is because of, as I mentioned, collaboration and the use of data in order to inform how do we make the vaccines. So I hope that that type of a collaboration continues. I hope that data sharing will continue. And in other areas, as I also touched upon as diagnostics, we have embraced, I can tell you at Roche, at the time, there was a real resistance in the industry to any care models that where you would have an ability to have diagnostics, let's say in your local store or even at home. So it's been wonderful to see that change. I do hope it lasts. And there have always been issues with reimbursement, with sensitivity, with accuracy of many of these tests. So I do see, as you called your podcast and you're looking into 2050, I certainly hope that we'll get there. We'll be able to have easy diagnostics and prognostics for ourselves that are accurate and easily available and not too expensive. So Luba, one of the important levers that we have in our sector and what's often talked about is R&D efficiency in biotech. And I'm curious to hear your perspective on what you think isn't particularly working as it relates to driving R&D efficiency across our sector and what we can do about it. 
Rahul, it's uh, it's interesting, and different people have very different perspectives. One of the areas when I went to on the tech side, we were we recognized that R and D efficiency is, of course, one of the major challenges to solve for the life sciences. And we would speak to heads of R and D of different pharma, and we did it doing something very similar, Rahul, uh, that you're doing. And we would get one of two answers. One was we need to expedite getting to the clinic. And the second one, which was actually answered more often, was we need to cut programs faster and not throw good money after bad. And as a result, we have seen entire industries formed around R&D efficiencies, everything from digital tools. We've seen more and better data being integrated, better data interoperability. We've looked at basic modeling and computational analysis to identify new targets quicker, novel compounds quicker, predict efficacy, toxicity, and also, of course, what's already been done, and we could do more of that, and especially outside of oncology, is utilize more biomarkers to identify responders. And we're also using the same tools to enroll, for example, patients faster. It's one of the things that many of the clinical trial companies in clinical trial are doing. But unfortunately, we have been talking about digitization, synthetic arms, and real-world evidence, and AI for many years now. There are many startups, as I mentioned, many large players in this space, but R&D is still not run efficiently. And ultimately, because it comes down to teams and talent, there is no magic bullet, no magic AI, no magic data source that could answer that question for you. It's that talent and the team and also understanding biology before you start on your experiments. Because generating insights of target ID, which is what many, I would say, platform technologies, as you've seen, many emerge by itself, does not make a life-saving drug. It's just a tool in the toolkit that you should be using, but only when you have an actual multidisciplinary team that comes together and works on the same goal and breaking down those silos, not just in data, but in talent, because we talk about breaking down in silos and data a lot, but it's that talent breaking down of silos that will make the biggest difference. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I've been noticing as we're at this intersection now more so than ever of software and biotech, the need for very heterogeneous skill sets continues to accelerate quite rapidly. And as part of the reason we're, we're in this talent crisis right now as a sector, I'm curious, given your experience in, in big tech, if you have any thoughts around our ability to attract talent from other sectors and what we can do better as an industry about that. Rahul, that's a very good question. And certainly there are many examples of bringing in people and with skills from different sectors that work. I actually don't think that it's industry specific. So, so what I mean by that is when Apple started working on the, well, the, the, the watch, and people say, wow, it's a tech company. They are so impressive. How did they figure out healthcare? And it's actually a simple answer. They didn't figure out healthcare. They are a device company. They make devices. And a watch is, is a form of medical device. And so if you are in the device space, making devices for anything, you could take a lot of that. And again, you could be an engineer. You could be uh, a project manager. You could be a lawyer in that company. You could have any of the various backgrounds. You will do well in the device. Sometimes I see people from device and diagnostics 
it's much harder for them to go into therapeutics than somebody from another industry entirely that is more focused on high-risk innovation where there are a lot of failures and projects are very expensive and there are long timelines in order to get to a product. So when you are in a product industry, for example, when you're making diagnostic products, you can certainly take a lot of the people and skills from other products in there. And the same thing with services. A lot of the healthcare changes that we're trying to make are actually in the models that will be probably the most interesting. And hopefully we'll get there in 2050, where we figure out not just the services that we provide with our really neat digital tools, but how do we get those services to patients that truly need them, not the healthy ones. Uh, as we're seeing right now, but the ones that are really, really ill with many, many comorbidities, how do we get that? And the answer, we'll probably get it from somebody from a services industry that's from entirely different industry. So absolutely. And then, as I mentioned, regulatory therapeutics and healthcare has high regulatory hurdles, everything from actually making a drug to selling a drug, to talking about a drug, to marketing a drug. The same thing for being paid for a drug. Everything involves regulatory authorities and and significant challenges. It's very similar to many other high regulatory businesses. We can easily take, for example, a CFO from another uh, highly regulatory industry business and bring them into the life sciences. Yes, I certainly agree. And you know, you mentioned 2050. I'm curious from from your vantage point, what does biotech look like at that time? So in 20 years, I don't have a crystal ball, but it's more of a wish uh, versus seeing what is going to happen. I would say, I hope that in 20 years, we will not be making medicines blindly anymore, which is why I'm so excited in Cogen. That's what we're doing. We actually are basing it on real human biology. Also in 20 years, I hope we have more better and more accessible diagnostics. And then we find cures for debilitating chronic diseases and neurodegeneration, for example, so that we can improve people's lives. Wonderful. And Luba, to wrap up, given all that you've seen over your career, if I can ask you to reflect for a minute, what's one piece of advice (coughs) you would provide your younger self knowing all that you now know? That's a hard question. And the answer for me is, is probably, I'd be curious, going to put the question back to you is perhaps why you have this uh, wonderful podcast. I personally love listening to podcasts because I learn and I, every day I recognize that I know less and less, I feel like, because every day I'm learning from real experts. So I would say for me, the advice would be, don't be afraid to ask questions and learn, learn from as many people as possible. And they don't always have to be experts. They can be people next door. So that's one of the reasons why probably actually podcasts are popular is because it's a way for people to learn and and maintain their curiosity. Yeah, that's great advice, Luba. And and certainly wish I did more of that when, when I was younger too. Well, wonderful, Luba. It was a pleasure having you on. Thanks for joining us today and for sharing, I'm sure, a little bit of all that you've experienced with our audience. Wonderful. Rahul, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.